a passage in Matthew chapter 21. Uh, It is the uh, triumphal entry where Jesus enters into Jerusalem on the donkey. And uh, here's what the crowd did. It said, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So they were praising and worshiping and cheering for Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem. And of course, I have uh, always said they were doing the right thing, saying the right thing, but their hearts weren't right. How do we know? Because... By Friday, they were shouting something differently. They were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. So, uh, this tells us that there's such a thing as false worship, false praise, false belief. They believed in Jesus, the political Messiah, who they wanted to uh, have deliver them from Rome, but they didn't believe in Jesus, the personal Messiah, who died on, their cr- on the cross to pay for their sins. So, um, What I have been doing is saying, let's use this opportunity to examine ourselves to make sure we are not like the crowd, where we have some kind of faith in Jesus and put forth some kind of worship of Jesus, but we're really not saved. In fact, the scripture does tell us in uh, 2 Corinthians to examine ourselves to make sure we are in the faith. So uh, this is week three where we are, are uh, examining ourselves. This is the longest uh, medical exam that's ever gone on. Um, but I asked last week, is there a book in the Bible that is specifically written for the purpose of examining ourselves to see if we be in the faith? Right? And uh, the answer is yes. First John was written for that purpose. Uh, John gives several tests uh, for us to examine ourselves. Now, if you read 1 John, there are three themes that reoccur again and again and again. It's five chapters, but these three themes occur throughout the book. And the three themes uh, are this, that a true believer, if you're a true believer, you will, first of all, love one another. The Lone Ranger Christian who says, I love Jesus, I just don't love his church, is deceived. A sign of true salvation is that you become a part of the family of God. And yep, just like in your ordinary family, you know, there may be some some difficult people in the family, but you love them. And the same is true with following Christ. If you're a true believer, you don't go to church and go home and talk behind everybody's back and criticize and uh, hate the church, but I love Jesus. All right, so that's, that's number one. The second theme, a true believer will hate sin. And that's what we're going to talk about today. You have a new relationship um, to sin. And then a third test, and we're going to look at this next week, is you will love truth. You will not be in the darkness anymore. You will be in the light, in the light of what is true and uh, biblically true. So those are the three tests. Um, So today, we want to take a look 
at the second one. If you're a true believer, you will hate sin. And here are some verses uh, throughout 1 John. 1 John 2, 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Pretty simple. Now, it doesn't say you are saved by keeping his commandments. What it says, what the whole of Scripture says, is when you realize you're a sinner and you need a Savior and you trust in Jesus as your Savior, your heart changes and your new heart now obeys his commandments and we know that we have come to know him. How do you know that you know that you know that you know that you know him? You know him because now you have a new obedient heart. If you don't, you're not saved. 1 John 2, 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Again, it's not you're born again by practicing righteousness or earning your salvation. No, when you believe in him, that's when you are born again. And guess what? When a new baby has new life, there's activity and there's, there's a new appetite. And the new uh, appetite of a Christian uh, is righteousness. You, you strive after righteousness. What's that? That's obedience to his commandments. First right. John 3, 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself. You can't remain in the sin. You have to flee from the sin. So he purifies himself as he is pure. All right? So what we want to talk about is your new relationship toward sin. Four points. All right? Point one, true believers, one, won't continue to sin. That's disturbing, isn't it? And we'll take a look at, at the details. Two, but you won't be perfect either. Some of you go, I got that down. Right. Three, we'll repent when you fall. And four, we'll persevere till the end. All right, so let's, let's talk about number one. If you are a true believer, if you have truly trusted in Christ... The first thing that changes is your relationship to sin. Point number one, you won't continue to sin. 1 John 3, 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. If you keep on sinning, 1 John 3, 6 says, you're deceived about your salvation. You haven't seen him, and you really don't know him. Now, you go, whoa, I must not be saved. Because I still sin. Now, um, don't worry, we're going to qualify this. Some of you know the... The Greek present tense is involved here, and you know this doesn't mean perfection, okay? We're going to go there. We're going to talk about that. But before we go there, would you please let this verse make its impact upon you? Do you get the idea that it's, it's saying you can't just continue 
as normal? When do, you, when do you claim that you became a Christian? If there has not been a noticeable, radical break with sin in your life, you're fooling yourself. You may have prayed a prayer, you may have walked an aisle, you may have joined a church, but you're not a Christian. This verse says, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now, somebody might come back and say, now wait a minute, don't we gradually grow in holiness over our entire lives? Yes, there is a gradual growth. But when you were saved, really the moment you were saved, you went from death to life. I mean, just as Lazarus was dead and then alive, there's a noticeable difference. You know, sometimes people say, well, who are we to judge whether somebody is saved or not? And there's a degree of truth to that. Only God ultimately knows But how hard is it really to tell the difference between a dead body and a living person? That's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. The non-Christian is dead in their sin. The Christian is now alive in their righteousness or in Christ's righteousness. There should be a noticeable difference. When you were saved, you went from death to life. You went from sin being your master to now righteousness being your master. Romans 6, study it. You went from darkness being your environment to light being your environment. Now, when people like George Barna do surveys and they conclude that there's no statistical difference between how Christians behave and non-Christians behave, guess what? There's a lot of deceived people calling themselves Christians. Right? Now, when Barna does his survey and we find out that Christians live the same kind of lifestyle as non-Christians, what many people in the church do is they go, oh, the church just needs to teach more practical messages. Let's be more practical. Or, the church needs a different approach to reach this generation today. How about the church is full of dead people who really haven't been born again? You can do all the practical teaching you want. You can do all the contemporary music you want. You can uh, be the contemporary church with the reputation for being alive, but in the book of Revelation it says, you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. How do you know whether you're alive or dead? You practice righteousness. Those who do not practice righteousness are not saved, even though they call themselves Christians. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. All right? Now, now that half of you are having a heart attack right now, okay? And you know what? Some of us need a heart attack. But let's go on to point two. A true believer won't be perfect. 
In fact, if you, if you read the King James Version, this verse, 1 John 3, 6, is even more terrifying. It says, Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. It's very black and white. If, if you are in him, you sinneth not. Whoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. And the person who reads this says, Oh no, I sinneth last night. So I must not know him, right? Um, well, here's, here's the, uh, where a little bit of Greek knowledge makes you dangerous. The, the word sinneth is in the present tense. In the Greek, the present tense is the tense of continual action. So um, the ESV and the NIV do, in their translation, include the idea of continual action, um, no one, this is ESV, who abides in him keeps on sinning. The idea is if this is your life sinning as a non-believer and you say, I got saved right here and you continue on with no change, you're a liar. You, de- you deceive yourself. There has to be some kind of break with the lifestyle you used to live, because you were dead. You, you may have been a tax-paying, law-abiding, nice, suburban, grass-cutting American, but you were dominated by sin. Sin was your master. Something had to change. You cannot continue on in that state without there being some radical change if if you claim to be a Christian. So the idea here is you can't go on in the same lifestyle, but it doesn't mean perfection. Because in the same book, 1 John 1.8, it says, If we say that we have no sin, in other words, I'm perfect, We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So how do you merge these two concepts together? If you continue sinning, you're not saved. Oh, if you claim that you're perfect, you're not saved. Well, you have to to put them together by saying, if you're saved, you can't continue to the same degree, in the same lifestyle. But even after you're saved, even though there's a dramatic difference, an observable difference, you will still sin or you are self-deceived. You, you're, you're like a Pharisee who has to convince himself that you are perfect. Okay? We looked at this verse before in 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. See, that there's a theme of deception about your salvation throughout Scripture. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. Okay. So um, the idea here is that was your lifestyle. You cannot go on living in sexual immorality, in adultery, in homosexuality, in thievery, living for money, drunkard, 
Reviler, that's a, a person who's always putting other people down. Swindlers. You cannot live in that lifestyle and call yourself a Christian. But now, once you become a Christian and you put that lifestyle aside, will all temptation automatically go away? No. Right? Might somebody fall? Yes. But the difference is, before when you fell, it was life. It was fine. You justified it. Now, you hate it. It's not that you become sinless, but it is that you will sin less. Okay? Let me, um, let me give you some, some pictures to help you with this. Um, I saw this on the internet. Somebody said, what people think success looks like, a straight shot. What it really looks like, okay? <laughs> it's a little messier than the straight shot. If you were to picture your growth as a Christian, here's your growth in holiness, and this is time. Here's what people, naive Christians, think it should look like. It's just a straight shot. First, you're down here, and then you have this dramatic change, and then it's just a day-by-day straight shot, no problem. And the reality is, this is more what the Christian life looks like. All right? We struggle, we fall, we get up, we ask for forgiveness, we fall, we ask for forgiveness. But there is an upward trajectory of growth. Now, the danger is, if you decide to evaluate how you're doing on a down day, you're going to convince yourself, I'm, I never was saved. Okay? Or, if you evaluate yourself on an up day, like, I am so wonderful. Okay? It's kind of like when you watch your grandkids grow. Um, if, if, if you, day by day, it doesn't look much, but you've got to step back, and over the years, you go, whoa, look how big they are. Whoa, look how big. That's how you need to evaluate your life, not day by day, but step back. How were you a year ago? How are you now? Is there some progression in spite of the falls occasionally? Okay. Another, another way to picture it, Johnny Cash has two dogs. You know what their names are? Hell and redemption. Right? Now, this is a picture of before you're saved, you're a black dog with white spots, okay? You're, you're, you live in darkness. But there's, you know, uh, the, the non-saved person does have some, uh, some spots of righteousness. They're not all evil. And now, redemption, you're a white dog, but you still got some black spots. Has there been this dramatic change from black to white, but even while you're white, there's still some black spots? Okay. You like the animal illustrations? How about this one? <laughs> a pig versus a lamb. They may both fall in the mud. The difference is the pig likes it. Okay? If you're a lamb, if you're truly saved, you may still fall in the mud, but your new nature doesn't like it. You have to get out and you have to get clean. You know, Peter uses this. He says, 
they're talking about the, the false believer. He says, what the true proverb has happened to them, uh, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And you have dogs who do that. You know, what are you thinking? <laughs> We're not thinking, right? The sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Unbeliever, that's your life. Believer, new, clean, righteous, you might get dirty, but let's get out of the dirt. Okay. Point number three. The true believer will repent when fallen. So you say, okay, I am a believer, but when I sin, what am I supposed to do? Well, 1 John 2 says this. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I don't want you to sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. What's an advocate? A lawyer, right? A defense attorney. So, here's what happens. Next time you sin, right? how, do you, how do you repent? Do you say, I'm going to do it all my... No. You, you come before Jesus, and he is your advocate, your defense attorney, and you say, I'm so sorry. And I'm afraid that I have so offended God that he won't accept me anymore. And Jesus says, don't worry. I'm your advocate with the Father. I'm righteous. And it says, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Don't worry about that. There's, you, you know what? If you were a four-point Calvinist, though, that'd be a great void, a verse to, to hold on to. Talk amongst yourselves. Okay. Right. <laughs> But, um, why can Jesus defend you? Because now you're going to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you're never going to sin again? No, he can defend you because he is not only the advocate, the defense attorney, he is the propitiation. What's that? The sacrifice that appeases the wrath of God. He says, not only will I uh, go to bat for you, but I paid the price. And that price not only uh, covered your, your, uh, your sin, paid the penalty, but it turned away the Father's wrath. So you're covered. You know, I, I tell you, when you witness to people, ask them the question, uh, if you were to die today and stand before God, and he said, why should I let you into heaven? What, do you, you know, what would you say? And 99% of people say, well, I'm a pretty good person. That's the, the wrong answer. You're not good enough to get into heaven. The right answer is, this is what I'm going to say, why should, why should you let me into heaven? You shouldn't, but I'm with him. And Jesus will say, yep, he's one of mine. I died for him. And God's going to go, ah, come on in. That's what you do when you get saved. And that's what you do when you sin. You come before God and you tell 
him you're sorry and you remind yourself that Jesus is your propitiation and your advocate. Now, this raises some confusion for some people because you go, um, in fact, here, here is the verse, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when you sin, you come before him and you tell him you're sorry. You confess it and he will cleanse you and he is just to do it because he died on the cross. He's your propitiation. Okay. Now, this raises the question, wait a minute. Do I need to, every time I sin, do I need to confess it? I thought that when I trusted in Christ, I was made perfectly righteous in his sight. But do I need to do this confession thing? And do I need to go to a priest and go in the dark, scary box? Right, as some of you were raised. So does confession mean go to a priest in a box? Well... Priest, yes, you need to go to a priest. Box, no, you don't need to meet him in the box. What priest? Jesus is your high priest. You see, the, uh, the whole Old Testament priesthood pointed to Jesus, the high priest, who now is at the right hand of the Father, who is your advocate, who is uh, your defense attorney, who is your priest. He's also the sacrifice. You don't need to go in the dark box. Okay? You go directly to him. Just tell him, I am sorry. Please forgive me. Now, you go, but, but what about... What about this idea that we're already saved? Do I need to get re-saved over and over again? No. The confession right here. This is not talking about being saved again or being re-justified again. What this is talking about is restoring a broken relationship with God. Justification is once and for all. You can't lose your justification if you're truly justified. It's like adoption. Once you've adopted a child, that child doesn't need to reapply for adoption every time he sins. But they can sin, and sometimes it breaks fellowship. So you need to have that fellowship restored. Jesus kind of explained it here at the Last Supper. He's starting to wash the feet of the disciples. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So Peter goes from one extreme. No, you're the Lord. Don't wash my feet. To now Jesus says, well, if I don't wash your feet, can't have anything to do with you. So Peter goes... Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Give me a full bath. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Peter, you've already had the bath. You've already been justified. You don't need to be re-justified. You don't need to be re-saved. But as you walk through through the dusty streets of Jerusalem, your feet are going to get dirty and you do need the occasional foot washing. The minute you trust in Christ for salvation, you are justified, you are saved, you are forgiven. Now you're in a relationship with God and sometimes you sin. You need to go to him, not to be resaved, but to say, I'm sorry. 
I have sinned. Please forgive me. And he washes your feet. That's what confession and forgiveness is talking about in this verse. You know, some of you truly are saved. But you don't do this. You don't confess your sin to God. David refused to confess after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And he says, for when I kept silent, when I didn't confess my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Um, You know, when you are in sin, not confessing sin, sometimes it physically shows up. God's hand is heavy upon you. Now, don't look at your neighbor who has a cold and go, whoop, confess. Doesn't always work that way, but sometimes it does work that way. So, what happens in verse 5? I acknowledged my sin to you. I repented. I told him I'm sorry. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. He didn't get resaved. He was restored in fellowship to God. And then how's the psalm end? Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Now, um, some of you have never confessed your sin at all. You try to convince yourself that you're good enough. You're unsaved. The only people that, are, that can be saved are those who first acknowledge that you're a sinner. Some people never confess their sin to their wife, to their children. They try to give the impression that they're perfect. They've never apologized to anyone, let alone God. The only people who can get saved are those who are convicted of their sin, and they know that they are sinners. And when sinners come to Jesus, Jesus is a friend of sinners. He will forgive them. And then there are those who have come to Christ, and you are truly saved. But you're not good at confessing and repenting. You kind of fall back into Phariseeism, where you want to put up a front for everybody that you're perfect. You know how you tell? People who don't confess their sin, people who never apologize, um, they have glaring faults of their own that they don't point out. But their defense mechanism is they're always criticizing others. Because the Pharisee has to play the game. He has to convince himself that he's right before God. And he does it by convincing himself that he's never wrong and pointing out the faults of others. So the, 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 the tactic is, if I, can, uh, if, if I can convince myself that I'm pretty good, I never confess, and I can criticize others, I'm sitting pretty. That's not how the Christian life works. You admit it when you're wrong. You admit it to your family, to your friends, to your spouse, and to your God. So the non-believer lives a lifestyle of denial, and the believer who's stuck in this world of 
pain is also trying to convince himself in God that he's a pretty good guy. Confess. Admit you're wrong. Tell him, I have sinned. And you know what he'll do? He'll say, I'm your lawyer. I'm your defense attorney. I will go to bat for you. Father, I died for him. He's one of mine. And the Father says, welcome back to fellowship. Some of us need to do that. Some of us are trying. It's an awfully lonely life to pretend you're perfect. It's an awfully lonely life to have to justify yourself by condemning everybody else. Okay. Now, I'm going to call an audible here because... uh, My fourth point is we will persevere till the end. And you notice there's an entire separate sheet (laughs) for this point. Um, And I'm going to exercise some self-discipline here and not not even enter into uh, this. Other than to say, other than to say that a true believer, even though you may fall, and get back up, and fall, and get back up. You will keep doing that till the end. You will keep persevering in your faith, and pursuing righteousness, and repenting of your sin. If you got saved 20 years ago, you started 20 years ago, and today you're still doing that, until the day you die, you will persevere in your faith, Trusting in Jesus, obeying him, falling on your face, getting back up. You don't quit. You will not quit. If you quit, you were never saved to begin with. True believers persevere because we have a promise. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So we have a promise that if you're truly saved, you can't be lost. But we not only have a promise, we also have a warning. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Present, uh, God will present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith. Now, some people take these verses to mean you can lose your salvation. I think these verses teach simply that if you don't persevere, you never had it. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Not to see whether you lost your salvation, but examine yourselves to see whether you were ever in it to begin with. So, is your life characterized, not by perfection, but by a quest to obey him? By a quest to read his word. Not just go to church and be told his word, but to read his word and to study his word and to say, you know what, my life doesn't line up with this. I am going to repent and change and do that day after day 
after and you fall and you repent and you get up and you go to your advocate and he forgives you and you keep running the race because only those who persevere are saved. Now, if you're truly saved, you will persevere. And I was going to spend 20 minutes getting into that whole dynamic of how that works. We don't need to do that. If you're saved, you will persevere. And if you don't persevere, you were never saved. Okay? It all comes together. Wow, look at all these verses we're skipping. Okay. It all comes together in Philippians 2. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, notice it doesn't say work for your salvation. You are not saved by works. But once you're saved, you work it out. And I call this the Gatorade verse. Picture a, a, a person who's out on the football field or the basketball court, and it's the fourth quarter, and they are sweating it out. And there's a timeout, and the, the water boy comes out, and you get the Gatorade. That's your salvation. Uh, it's a free gift. Now, get out there and sweat it out. Leave it all on the floor. Right? Work out your own salvation. Now, fear and trembling. Those who think you can lose your salvation are always saying, see, why would you have fear and trembling if, if, uh, if you couldn't lose your salvation? Well, because the verse says nothing about losing your salvation. You, you have to read that into it. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because you might lose it and go to hell. No, that's not what it says. It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because a true believer has reverence for a holy God. We do have fear of Offending him with our sin. We do tremble before his word. Okay? But, now here's the, the good part. For it is God who works in you. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There is the encouragement. Keep running. Keep persevering. Make it to the end. And then there's the promise that he holds you in the palm of his hand. He's given you the Gatorade. And he is working in you. He has not called you to an impossible task. He has called you to a very difficult task to keep pursuing, to keep fighting sin. But the good news is, he's inside of you. Giving you the power to do this. Are you trusting him? Are you taking that next step? Do you need to repent of something this morning? Do you need to say, Lord, I am sorry. Name it. And then remind yourself that he is your advocate, your defense attorney. He is your propitiation. Be restored in fellowship. And then... Let's take a look. It's tough to dissect your sermon. Jude one twenty four. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, from falling, 
and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. You're not on your own. He is able to keep you from falling. He is able to keep you running the race and persevering. Fight and run with all you have, knowing that he is working in you, and he promises that you're going to make it, and he will keep you from falling. All right, let's pray.